Web forms are everywhere, and chances are you have one on your website as well. The question is, what makes a good web form? I'll get into that today. Plus, on occasion, I like to take a little bit of time to highlight a useful tool that can help make your life a little easier. In a previous episode, I talked about an app called Sync, a free Dropbox alternative. Today, I'll share a tool that's essential if you do any type of file sharing. All this and more on The Rightly Designed Show. No man who cares about originality will ever be original. It's the man who's only thinking about doing a good job or telling the truth who becomes really original and doesn't notice. You're listening to the fusion of form and function. This is the Rightly Designed Show. Hello and welcome to the program. My name is Thomas and this is the Rightly Designed Show. So web forms are pretty much everywhere. We use them almost every day. A lot of us do likely to interact with different websites when we're purchasing a product, when we're signing up for new accounts, when we're trying to contact someone. There's a plethora of different ways that we interact with forms every single day. And a lot of us have web forms on our own websites, even for something as simple as just allowing them to get in touch with us. But a lot of thing, a lot of forms out there follow a lot of really bad use of usability practices, and a lot of common mistakes that can just end up frustrating users. I know personally, I was using a web form a little while back, and this is just a specific example. I'll probably touch on here shortly. But I was using a web form that prevented me from being able to copy and paste things into it. So this so happened to be for uh, for banking information. It was actually it was a government website. Um, which, side note, uh, not a big shocker that it had some usability issues, but I'll leave that aside. Um, But it would not allow you to paste information into the input field, which kind of got me thinking. It was like, this, this does two things. One, it makes it harder for me to finish filling out the form. And two, it makes me more prone to mistakes because I have to hand type two times this long account number, which makes it 10 times more likely that I'm going to make a mistake as I'm typing those out. Um, so it just got me thinking that form forms are such an active and such a commonly used touch point uh, with users that it pays in the end, especially if it's a longer form or especially if it's something tied into a checkout process, it really does pay in the end to make that form as easy as possible to be able to fill out. So uh, .NET Magazine actually had a really interesting, or Net Magazine actually had a really interesting article that highlighted 10. So I could probably add on another 10 of my own, but I thought that this would be a really good, this was a really good basis and a really good quick 10 tips that you could take away and consider as you are developing or as you are creating your own web forms. And this applies if you're a web developer or a web designer, but just as much, even if you're not and you're using a web form uh, plugin or service, and I'll mention a couple after I go through the article that you can use if you don't already uh, have one or you're looking for something a little bit more robust and powerful in terms of creating uh, web forms. But the first one is they said only ask, number one is only ask what's required. And this does happen quite often where you'll go to a web form and it'll ask for a whole bunch of other information that's not necessarily relevant to what they are uh, providing so, for example, if you've got an online shop and you're asking for a bunch of information, let's say it's a digital product and you're asking for the shipping information, 
That'd be an example of asking for information that you don't necessarily need in order to fulfill that that order that makes it more difficult for them to complete the process. Again, it just adds to their frustration. So it's not, you know, before I go on to the other steps, it's not necessarily that all of these things are like life ending or that these are catastrophic, uh, but they're little pinpricks. They're little annoyances that add up over time. And, and as they add up over time, people, uh, especially if they have an alternative to your website, especially if there is an alternative way to go, you'd be surprised how something as simple as a form can be something that actually deters or pushes someone toward or away from using your particular website. So number two, order the fields logically. So uh, this is pretty, this is particularly important if this is going to be something that is a long form. And one way that you can do this is to break the form down into sections. So rather than like, for example, they've got a little image here, which does a, a pretty good job of illustrating it. Rather than showing first name, last name, email, password, address, city, and profession, you could break it down into personal information, account information, contact information, and then put those things in the relevant section. It also helps people uh, think things through logically so that they can deal with one piece at a time rather than, especially if they go back later and they want to change something, it makes it easy for them to be able to find that section in your form. Uh, number three, keep labels short. And this is a great one. Um, because a lot, of it's, a lot of forms out there will actually pose things as a question when they don't need to, or they'll just make it a really long sentence, or they'll just make it confusing. So whatever is going to be most relevant to the person filling it out at that time, whatever is going to make it most logical for them, uh, do that. But again, the shorter it can be, the better. There are some forms that kind of have an exception to this rule. I've actually got a couple of forms myself that are an exception to this rule, and they ask they ask questions specifically. They're done through a, a service called Typeform, which I'll touch on at the end of this article. Um, and there are some cases when you want to, you're actually asking a question to get a specific type of answer out of someone. But again, that's a little bit more long form as opposed to someone who's, say, creating an account or you know purchasing something through an online shop. Number four, don't duplicate fields, and this is a big one too. If you're if you have an online shop with a form. Uh, pretty much something that is essential is always offer someone the option to use their billing their billing information that they entered as shipping information, and to use that that basic model for anything else for anything else that they don't have to duplicate. If they've already given you their email address, if they're visiting you know from a link that you provide, let's say that you're doing an email blast to your email list, and you've got built in. Uh, you know, you've you've already got the email address that the person subscribed with, so you know, build that into the link. And if at all possible, when they're hitting that form, fill out all the information you can. Uh, so you know, fill out their first name, their last name, and their email address for them before they even get started. Make things as simple for them as possible, and then of course, don't duplicate fields. Don't make them fill out, uh, you know, shipping and billing and all these information over and over again that they don't. You, that they don't have to or isn't necessary or relevant. Um, there are certain situations where this applies, uh, you know, where, you know, this rule doesn't necessarily apply. Sometimes it can be nice to have people fill out a password twice, but uh, they actually touch on this here in the article a little bit, but that's becoming less and less relevant. And again, as I mentioned earlier with the, the example I, I talked about for having to fill in banking account information, 
Those two fields only made it more prone for me to make a mistake. Now, largely because of the fact that I had I wasn't able to copy and paste, but by just making someone type it in twice doesn't necessarily make them less prone to make a mistake. In some cases, it can actually make it more. Uh, so again, think twice when determining whether or not to use that password field or that account field twice if it's actually going to help or whether it's going to hurt in the case of helping prevent someone from making a mistake. Highlight optional fields is number five. So there's kind of two ways to do this. Some people like to highlight the required field, uh, required fields. Some people like to highlight the optional fields. They're actually making the case here, which is an interesting one, which is to highlight the optional fields rather than the uh, the required fields. And I would agree with this only if you've got only a few optional fields. So for most forms, if you're designing the form well, almost every single form field should be required. The only time that you're really going to add in a lot of optional fields is if it's going to be a more of a questionnaire type form that they're filling out. But this actually is a pretty good practice. Highlight the optional fields rather than the required ones since just about everything is going to be required. What that does is it highlights the fewer ones. What will happen then is that by highlighting the optional ones, everybody's already going to assume all the other ones are required. Uh, and they'll just notice those optional ones. Transversely, you know, converts conversely from that. If somebody is going, if they have got a form that's got tons of different required fields that are all labeled as required, and then one or two optional ones mixed in there, it's going to be easier for them to miss the fact that those are optional. Uh, when, of course, if you just switch that around and make the optional ones highlighted, it solves that problem. Number six, be careful with defaults. Um, so if there is a field that somebody isn't necessarily going to fill out or they don't want to, uh, or you know they just miss it, it's very easy for them to just leave that default field. So uh, defaults should generally be kept to an absolute minimum. And if you're using them, make sure you're very intentional about how you're using them. Uh, best case for a lot of forms, if you want to be able to supply someone with a tip as to what maybe they should fill into that field, you can do something with uh, HTML5, which is called a placeholder. So you've seen, you've probably seen this on a lot of fields before. This is different than the label. The label is the actual wording, like first name, that shows up above the field that you type in. But a placeholder is is actual gray text inside the input field or inside the form field that gives someone a hint as to you know what to type in there. So for example, if you had a first name field, you could show a placeholder, a little gray text in that field that says Marie. And then once you start typing in that field, that gray text would go away. So a placeholder is a great way to give someone context or an idea of the type of answer you're looking for without actually filling it in for them. Because, of course, if they just go down and hit submit, whatever you have defaulted in that form field is going to be sent to you. And that may or may not be the end result that you're looking for. Number seven, minimize the need for typing, which kind of goes back to one of the previous points, which is to remove a lot of redundancy. But realistically, uh, or more practically, it's just to remove the things that aren't needed. So for example, they've got on here a, another really good illustration, which shows a registration form. And it says, uh, email, retype email, password, retype password. So remove, remove those two retype passwords and just do email password and make it really simple. 
Um, again, pretty similar to not being redundant or duplicating fields when it's not necessary. But again, always, always consider and analyze it from their perspective. So, you know, step in their shoes for a couple of minutes, go through that form process and ask, is there anything I can cut out? Is there anything I can make this smoother and easier for them to get from point A to point B? So number eight, use real-time validation. And this can be possible uh, in, you know, this this can be contingent largely on the type of form that you're using. So if you're using a plugin or a soft or a software or a service, this may or may not be possible. But if at all possible, this is the greatest, this is the best way to go. So real-time validation, all that means is that as somebody is typing, it's going to show them immediately before they fill out the form, whether or not what they filled in is correct. So for example, if you're asking for a phone number and they don't type a number, if they just type in a bunch of letters and they move on to the next field, it outlines a lot of times, and I mean, this isn't how you have to do it, but a lot of times it'll give a red outline around that field with maybe like a red X off to the side and give a little tip and say, please enter a valid phone number. Uh, a lot of times people will do that um, live. So it's real-time validation rather than, again, as I mentioned, having to actually submit the form, have the page refresh, and then have a list of errors that they have to correct. This is a little bit quicker for them. That way they don't have to leave the page or go through them or start the process all over again. They can actually do it as they're typing. They can see whether or not what they've entered is correct. So real-time validation, if you can do it, it's a great thing to in incorporate into uh, your forms. Number nine is avoid fixed input formats. So this is another one that uh, is pretty common. I see it more commonly among um, government websites. But uh, yeah, so this one does come up fairly often. And what this is, what, it, what this means by avoid fixed input formats is, you've probably run into, into this before, but going back to the phone number example, let's say that you have a, you know, a, a form uh, a forms, you know, filling software or a password manager that fills out forms for you. A lot of people use those these days. A lot of times what those form managers will do for you is actually fill it in with just all the numbers kind of smashed together. So no dashes, no parentheses around the area code or anything like that. And so what a lot of these websites will do is they'll say, you know, error, please enter the, your phone number in this specific format, which, you know, again, it's not a huge deal. It's not the end of the world. But it's something that very easily can be solved by just allowing the form itself to handle that input itself, you know, handle it properly. So if the, if the, if the numbers are all mashed together, then on the back end of however that form has been created, it will handle that. Or better yet, when somebody is typing, as they're typing, let it fill in the parentheses and the dashes as they're typing. So a lot of forms will do this as well. So if, as you type three numbers, it puts them in the parentheses. As you type three more, it adds a dash. And then as you type the last four, it's all formatted right there for you. So do all the heavy lifting or all the work for them. You know, filling out a form should be seamless. It shouldn't be something that uh, you have to sit there and fit into a specific mold to make it easier for that, you know, that site's developer. Uh, number 10, don't use reset buttons. And this is especially true if you've got a longer form. So I, I don't really under, I don't really know the idea behind why sites decided to start putting reset buttons, but this one can be pretty large on the frustration scale for a user. Especially if I've noticed a few in the past that will actually make the reset button fairly comparable to the save or submit button. Um, which what that means is in the end, after they're done filling that out, 
uh, as you as you guessed, it's it means that they are going to uh, they're going to completely lose everything they just typed out, which is not fun, especially, again, if it's a really long form, just adds to the frustration. So those are just 10 really uh, useful things to watch out for, I think, especially if forms are a big part of what you do. So what I mentioned as well is that there's a couple of specific tools I would recommend, and there are. I've been using it for a little while now, and this is probably the absolute best form-managing software I've ever found or, or service, and it's called Typeform. So they're, they're a really good service. It's a kind of a new and innovative approach to online forms. It's very user-friendly. It's very, it helps someone concentrate at, on one question at a time. So as somebody is asking, you know, as you're, they're filling out one specific point or question, they focus on just that. Once they finish it, they go to the next one. So it helps people really, it really walks people through the process. Typeform is great if you're looking to conduct surveys or do quizzes or I've also done you I mentioned it in uh episodes previously that I've I have an online assessment. I did that with Typeform. So they just have a ton of really useful ways of uh approach or ways of getting information from people that goes outside the scope or out of the norms of a form. If you're looking for a more traditional form, something that you can just embed directly on your website, that would be more akin to, say, a contact us form, which you can use Typeform for this. But again, it's a little bit fancier. It's a different approach to doing forms entirely. If you're looking for something more traditional, you can try a service called Wufoo, which is pretty good. So that's W-O-O-F-O-O, I think is what that is, .com. And they've got a pretty good service that makes it pretty easy, drag and drop interface to create forms and then embed them directly on your website. And then, of course, that'll work with WordPress or any different type of website that you have or that you are working with. Okay, and today's main topic is an app that I've been using for a while now, or a service, that has made it extremely easy to share files and do a whole bunch more. So I'm going to dive into that in some detail today. But before I do that, I wanted to take a quick moment to tell you about today's sponsor, and that is ConvertKit. So I've been using ConvertKit for almost a year now, and I have to say that it is by far the best email marketing software that I have ever found. So I've worked with a whole bunch of different types of email marketing services, whether that's signing up, uh, signing up for them specifically myself or on behalf of clients and customers who want different email marketing platforms worked into their websites or just help setting up their email lists. ConvertKit is by far the best I've used. And there's a lot of different reasons for this, but probably the top. The biggest reason why ConvertKit has shined above all the others is the way that it handles subscribers. So if you've ever used some of these other services, some of them are free, you jump in there and you create, let's say, maybe two or three different forms that people can use to sign up uh, for your email list. But what ends up happening is that every single time one person fills out each of these different forms, they get added as a subscriber multiple times. So you you end up uh, with an email list that gets out of control pretty quickly and you start running the risk of emailing people multiple times or if you're paying for the service which a lot of times you're paying by you know per subscriber then you end up paying more than you have to and it's just a huge hassle and a huge mess but ConvertKit handles everything in one uniform place so if somebody fills out five six seven different online forms which by the way are really easy to create in ConvertKit but if someone fills out a multitude of different forms they only remain as a subscriber once in your entire uh, email list 
So the great thing is that they allow you to segment out your subscribers if you want to. But even better than segments, it allows you to tag your subscribers. So you can say that if somebody fills out form A, tag them with tag A. If they fill out form B, tag them with form B. And so that you can start to get really strategic with how you target specific people who are filling out forms. So whether you're going to offer opt-ins, free ebooks, or free course content, or free videos, or whatever it is that you want to offer, ConvertKit allows you to begin becoming really organized and strategic with how you manage your email list. And, and as you know well, listening to this show, an email list is pivotal to building a brand and to building up an online business. So as a listener to the Rightly Designed Show, uh, ConvertKit is actually going to give you a 30-day free trial. So if you'd like to jump in there, upload your email list, even send out a few emails and give it a try, send up, set up some of the automations that they have, watch some of the videos. You can go to rightlydesigned.com slash ConvertKit. And again, they're going to give you a 30-day free trial at rightlydesigned.com slash ConvertKit. Have a question for the show? Feel free to visit rightlydesigned.com slash question or call 888-727-1496. Okay, and welcome back to the program. So back in episode five, all the way back in episode five, I talked about a free tool that I have had been using for a while and I still use to this day called Sync. And it was a great alternative to Dropbox, fast, secure, and very useful tool. And it just is a, it's a great way to kind of help boost productivity and to kind of stay on top of some of the most useful and powerful tools available. So that's one of the things I wanted to do from time to time on the Rightly Designed Show which is to just highlight a tool and to talk about some of the features and some of the specific tips and tricks that I've found as I've been using that particular tool. So today's tool is one called CloudApp, and CloudApp is an app that is available for both Mac and PC. Uh, it's a service that they do have a free version for, and they also have a couple of paid tiered options as well. Okay, so the concept of CloudApp kind of works like this. So what you do... Uh, if you're wanting to use Cloud App, you just go to their website. Uh, you download their app, and so you can get their app. And so I do have an uh, an affiliate link, which of course this is not a you know a sponsored episode. But if you'd like to support the show, you can go to rightlydesigned.com/cloudapp. If not, you can, I think you can just go to getcloudapp.com, uh, whichever way works for you. Um, you can just go to their website and download their app. Again, they have it for PC and for Mac. And you can also sign up for a free account so if you want to test it out. But the concept, it works like this. You, you install the app, and what it does is in your menu bar, so on a Mac, I'm not quite certain how it works on a PC. I think it's comparable or similar. But on, an, uh, on a Mac, on your main menu bar at the very top of your screen, it's going to add a little cloud icon. And so to get started with using CloudApp, it's as easy as taking any file and dragging it onto that cloud icon. So if you've got a zip file or if you've got an image or a video or even a link to a website that you want to keep handy or save for you know future reference, you just drag any of those things onto the cloud, that cloud icon, and what it does is it uploads it to CloudApp. It gives you a little bit, you know, it gives you an, uh, an indicator, a progress bar that that actual cloud icon turns into a progress bar so you can see its progress of how long it's taking to upload. But the second you upload or you, you drop something, a file onto that cloud icon, 
it makes a little noise. So I think it's like a, a little ding sound. And it instantly copies a link to your clipboard. So you can toss that into an email, you can toss that into a forum, you can do anything you want with it. And that link, you can just paste it right into your own web browser if you want to check it out. But it takes you to a page or a screen on CloudApp that enables you to see that file. So if it's a PDF and the PDF isn't too massive, it's a fairly reasonable size PDF, you can actually view that PDF. You can actually scroll through it. You can see, you know, all the different pages. If it's an image, you can view that image. If it's an audio file, you can listen to that audio file. It's a video. You can watch that video. Um, and then if it's a zip file or if it's a type of file format that isn't directly viewable or accessible on the web, it'll just offer you a little button. You can download that. So it makes it, again, really simple and easy to be able to drag. That's, that's kind of the process. It makes it very simple to share a file. You just drag it up to that icon and then it, you know, it instantly uh, clips a, uh, a URL to your clipboard, which you can then begin accessing. Uh, so that's kind of the, the gist of how Cloud App works, but it does a whole lot more than that, and, and a lot more can be done with it as a resource and as a tool. So one of the main things that you can do, in, you know, in addition to being able to go through and just share files, is it offers a great way to be able to get feedback on something. So if you are, you know, like me, I'm a designer, I'm working with a lot of different clients and prospects, and, you know, I'm always tossing around different logo designs or website design concepts, and it's important for me to be able to get feedback on those. Now I can just get those that feedback via email, which happens often as well, but it also enables you on a drop, so on a file that's been shared, for somebody to leave comments as well as annotations. So it's got this little area where anybody who has access to that link can actually click the little comments tab and go through and actually leave comments on that file. And you can actually have a conversation right there on that page, on that file shared page. You can also do annotations. So if, for example, you're trying to explain something to tech support or you're, you know, you're in touch with somebody who is trying to help guide you through something or you're guiding someone else through something. You can actually take, you can create annotations. So you can point with little arrows, you can type text. Uh, Cloud Apple also makes it really easy to be able to capture screenshots. So I'll, I'll do this all the time if I'm trying to give someone some instructions on how to use a WordPress theme or something else. I'll take a quick screenshot with Cloud App. It instantly out, uh, uploads it to Cloud App and then it opens, you know, it opens that particular screen grab that I just took. And then in that window, in that screen shared window, I'm actually able to go in there and add arrows, circle things, type text on that screenshot. So it makes that process really simple and easy. In addition to that, you can also record, you can also record uh, your screen, your desktop. So you can like pick you know, a section out. So if you just want to record part of your browser, this one area, you can you can go through and you can do a screen record uh, of your motion, everything that you're doing, navigating through, you know, a website or showing someone how to use an app, whatever it is, you can, you can do a little screen recording. And when you're done recording, instantly uploads that to Cloud App and then copies that to your clipboard. So it makes it really quick for you to be able to share uh, those different file or those different um, screen recordings as you're creating them. So if they're shorter as well, now by default, I think it does it as an HD video, which again, somebody can just view directly in that cloud app, that, that cloud app link that's shared. But in addition to that, it can also save those as a GIF. 
So if you want to be able to, you know, even if you're going to post this on Twitter or something, or, you know, you want to post it on Facebook, you want to just make a GIF really quick, you can actually do that with Cloud App as well. Or again, it allows you to record your screen. And of course, GIFs are a little bit more accessible than a video is. So for example, you wanted to make it, you know, really easy for someone to be able to view without having to press play. Again, you could do the GIF and you can also take that GIF and you can even tack it directly into an email or something like that. So somebody can see an animation or they can see you navigating uh, really easily as well. So again, it's a great tool, especially if you're trying to get help or if you're offering support uh, to people, it works wonderfully for that. Another tool that they have built into your file sharing is the ability to add passwords, so password protection and file expiration. So this works great if you're going to be working with with information that's a little bit more sensitive. So what you can do is you any drop, anything that you share on CloudApp, you upload to, to CloudApp, you can apply a password to it so that you cannot access that file unless you have that password, which again can work great uh, if you're working with something a little bit more sensitive. In addition to that, you can also apply an expiration date to any file. So what I can do is I can go in there and I can create a file, I can upload it, and I can, I can specify when this file expires. So I can say it expires in one hour, one day, one week, after one view or after 10 views, or I can actually customize that to be a, num you know, a combination of those different things. And what that means is that, let's say I decide that this file expires in one hour, what happens? So after one hour passes, after I select that particular file, it deletes itself. So again, this works great if you're working with something that's a little bit more sensitive and you just don't really want it floating out there on the internet. You have those options and those extra security benefits available to you. It also has event tracking built in, which is great because what you can see is uh, you can see at a glance all the different people who are viewing it. So CloudApp also has this little icon next to each file. So if you toss something out on social media, let's say that you're working on something and you would just want a little bit of feedback. You, you know, you, people can just leave comments directly on that drop. You can even email something directly to your list or you know, to a couple of people you're working with and just get some feedback in that comment section. But what you'll be able to see as somebody who's logged in and controls that particular drop, you'll be able to see all the different people who, are, who have viewed it. So if they themselves have CloudApp accounts, then you'll be able to see their names with next to their... Uh, their pictures. If they don't, it'll just say anonymous and it'll show you, you know, down to the minute when they visited or whether or not they downloaded or anything that was done with that particular file. Uh, another thing that they uh, added fairly recently, which is still kind of in development, but works really well. And I had no idea how useful it was until I started using it myself, but they have file stats. So what that means is that you, you go in there and they have all these different stats. So you're able to see a lot of information relevant to the file that you're sharing. So if you're, you know, let's say you're providing a download for people on your website and you're curious as to how many people are downloading that file. We'll tell you each day the number of downloads it's received. Uh, it can tell you, again, if they are specifically cloud app users or if they're not. Um, it can also show you where in the world they're downloading from. So it's got a, a world map and it shows you all the different downloads from different segments in the world. With your cloud app account, depending on which particular subscription you go with, there is a limit to the amount of times or the amount of bandwidth that a file can be can consume in a day, which means that 
If you have a one gigabyte file that's being downloaded, that means that it can be downloaded. If you've got the plan that allows 40 gigabytes of bandwidth, that means it can be downloaded 40 times per day. Um, but it shows you how much that how much bandwidth your file is currently consuming. Um, so it shows you all of that. It shows you the actual file size itself. It shows you the total transfers. So again, tons of information built in here that you can see at a glance. And again, this is each specific file you're able to see all this, this data on. So one of the things that I personally do with my CloudApp account is I actually use CloudApp to host the podcast you're listening to listening to right now. So I actually am able to go in there and view these analytics. I can see all the stats and the data behind how many times it's being listened to. I can see all of that within CloudApp. So there's a lot of people out there who use a lot of different third-party uh, podcast hosting services that offer a lot of these, these type of features within that service, but it's specifically for podcasting. The nice thing about CloudApp is I use it for the podcast, but I also use it for tons of other things as well. So it's become a multi-purpose tool and again, as you'll begin to see as I kind of go through some more of these things, um, why I recommend it so highly and why it's become you know, one of the most prominent tools in my personal workflow. So as I mentioned, I have been able to actually host a podcast using this. But beyond that, I also host a number of videos. You may have seen in the past that I record tutorials and I do little videos and walkthroughs and sometimes even miniature courses on rightlydesigned.com. And the way I actually host those, I used to do that through YouTube or Vimeo and just embed it in there. But what I've started doing now is I've actually found my own free and open source video player uh, that I've actually built into a lot of the themes or websites that I develop. And then I just host that video on cloud apps. So I just make sure that, again, there's a little bit of tech savvy that's required to pull something like this off. But if you can do it, if you can actually create a workflow that enables you to do this, it's great because you're in complete control of it. You don't have to worry about YouTube going down or YouTube you know, restrictions or all the different things that go along with using YouTube or somebody else's service. Um, you can control it all yourself. So what I've done is I've gone through and I've created this area where it incorporates with a, a free and open source video player. And then I just upload that video file exported to work well with the web and be uh, to work well with all today's modern browsers. But... Uh, export or import it to upload it to cloud app get the actual direct file link the actual link to the video itself and then plop that into that video player and then you know you're able to view it that way so you can actually see that it really designed we've got a couple of different courses on there or you can also see it uh, it's also active at notable themes so i've mentioned in the past as well that i actually have a uh, a website or a, a company that i offer uh, WordPress themes and plugins through. And on the front page of Notable Themes, there's a button that says learn more or, you know, watch the video. And when you click watch the video, it actually uh, slides down a video and that video is actually hosted on Cloud App. So again, there's just a ton of different uses for this particular service that goes, you know, far beyond just simply sharing files. One of the other things that I've found to do with it, and this one is a little bit more advanced, but there is some, there's an API out there that enables you to connect directly with your cloud app account. So what I've actually done is I've created a place on my rightly designed website that enables clients to actually go in there and upload files directly to my cloud app account. So what it is is I've got a form in there. People fill out their basic information, a little bit of details about what they're uploading, and then they can upload, I think it's up to 10 files one gigabyte a piece. 
And then when they submit that form, it uploads all those files, sends me an email with all those link with all those links kind of bulleted out for me that they uploaded for me. So again, that's a little bit more advanced, but it just gives you an idea of how flexible it can be and all the different uses that can come along with uh, with the service itself. And one of the probably one of the top uses that I found, and which I think just about anybody can get some use out of is a replacement to email attachments. So I don't know about you, but for me, email attachments used to cause so many problems because it depends on the person, on the account of the person that you're sending emails to. Sometimes spam filters will catch them. Some other times uh, you'll be sending a file that you don't really think is that big. But for whatever reason, the place that you're sending it to just won't accept it. It bounces. Email attachments, again, for me, have caused so many headaches. So what I actually decided to do, and again, this is part of the reason I decided to rely so heavily on CloudApp, is I don't use email. I do not attach files to emails at all anymore. I do everything through CloudApp. I, I offer it as a link. And, you know, if it's something that I need someone to be able to view, I link just to that specific, you know, to that drop page where they can actually see it on that cloud app page or cloud app can also allow you to get a direct download link so for example you can be typing out an email and say here's that file for you and you can actually copy a link that is specifically a download link so when someone clicks that it just automatically downloads that file to their computer so again they don't have to go through and actually click another button that says download um, but it's a great way as well to save yourself space because one of the best things about cloud app is unlike Dropbox and a lot of these other things, there it is unlimited with the amount of files that you upload. Now you are limited per file, and I'll get into that here in a second. I'll break down some of the packages. But the greatest thing about it is you never have to worry about a limit of file. You don't have a gigantic folder, you know, that's full of files. And once that you know that folder reaches capacity, you can't upload any more files. That's the way Dropbox works. Usually, I think it's like one terabyte, which is a lot, but. Once you reach that maximum, you can't upload any more files. It doesn't work that way with CloudApp. CloudApp, you can literally un you can upload unlimited files. So you don't have to worry about your mailbox getting full you know, with attachments. As long as you're using CloudApp, you're never adding any actual files to that mailbox. You're only adding them to CloudApp, which again is unlimited. So it solves a whole bunch of different problems, specifically with email attachments has probably been one of the most useful and I think probably wide ranging, meaning that pretty much anybody can benefit from, you know, not having to deal with uh, email attachments. So CloudApp has a number of different packages available. So they're, they've got a free option, which offers you 25 megabytes uh, per file is the maximum that you can upload. Again, all of these, even the free ones, uh, the free account is unlimited files. So you never run out of you know the number of files you can upload. It's just per file is where the cap is. So 25 megabytes per file and then two gigabytes of bandwidth per drop per day. That means that you can only consume two gigabytes of bandwidth. So how, so if you got a 25 megabyte file, I don't know, you do the math, but you can only download it uh, have it downloaded uh, so much as to consume two gigabytes of bandwidth. Then they allow 15 seconds of screen recording, 15 seconds uh, webcam video recording, and it does have cloud app brand branding built into it. So, uh, but if you want to get rid of that, they've got their first tier for their paid is is a package called Rain that gives you up to 500 megabytes at your max file size, four gigabytes, uh, four gigabytes bandwidth per drop per day, and then you get more time. 
uh, in terms of how long you can record. You can record up to, I think it's five minutes video. And then their next tier is actually the one I have, which is Storm. Uh, the Rain package, which is the previous one I just mentioned, is $10 a month. This one, Storm, is $29 a month. And this enables you to upload three gigabytes per file. Uh, and then you can uh, you can consume up to 40 gigabytes of bandwidth per drop per day. And then, of course, it's got unlimited recording for uh, video and for webcam video as well. Uh, and then if you're super crazy and you want to upload massive mega files with tons of different, uh, with lots of bandwidth, uh, they've got a, a higher tiered package called Hurricane, which is $79 a month. And that includes, you can upload up to six gigabytes per file. And then that includes uh, up to 100 gigabytes bandwidth per drop per day. But it says on their website, most popular is their Storm. That works great for me. Um, and again, this is probably one of the best services that I've uh, come to rely on. I find almost on like a monthly basis now, I'm finding new ways to rely on it. It's, it's become uh, quite a staple in my workflow. So as I mentioned, if you'd like to support the show, you can go to rightlydesign.com slash cloud app and I sign up for that account. Again, that's if you want to support the show. Otherwise, I think it's just getcloudapp.com if you want to go over there and sign up for an account. I'd recommend you just try it out. You'd probably be surprised how much time it can save you or how much even just some basic space it can save you and some headaches it can save you um, when it comes to working with something even as simple as email attachments. Um, so hopefully you found that useful. And as always, if you have a question for the show, if you have something that you would like me to cover in some more detail here, feel free to visit rightlydesigned.com slash question. I also have a phone number available to you, which you're able to call in at any time and record a question as well. And that's 888-727-1496. Again, that's 888-727-1496 if you'd like to ask a question for the program. So again, I would like to thank you for taking the time to listen to the program today, and we'll see you next week. Enjoying the Rightly Designed show? Please consider taking a quick moment to leave us a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or the channel of your choice. Visit rightlydesigned.com show for links to these channels and more.